This episode features some grisly content that is not suitable for some, including my younger audience. It features some pretty intense eyewitness accounts and descriptions, so please be aware and adjust accordingly. Goff's three minute. Your story. I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. Communism is the devil. Competition breeds success, which is why I obviously cast my vote for capitalism. The idea that the harder a man works, the more successful he can be. Communism, which takes a lot of the competition out, fosters corruptness, laziness, and fear-mongering. Today, I present to you such an example. An example not only of the ills of communism, but also what ills man can both allow and commit when gone unchecked and desperate. Today, I present to you Joseph Stalin's Cannibal Island. They say time heals wounds, but time also fades the memories of the evils in which those wounds were given. We must be careful not to see all history with rose-colored glasses in an attempt to feel better about humanity and our past. Our past should be continually examined in an effort to do better in our present and prepare for our future. And with that, I want to take a closer look at one of the cruelest aspects of the Soviet Union's communist regime under Joseph Stalin. Now, Joseph Stalin came to power in the newly formed Soviet Union in 1922. Originally, he helped rule the Soviet Union in a collective leadership of two others, forming a type of triumvirate. But by the early 1930s, he had eliminated the others and shared power and made himself the singular general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He was a dictator. He solidified his power through intimidation, fear, and getting rid of any political adversaries or those who would argue against his tactics, reforms, and leadership. One of the ways in which he did this was ship people off to the gulag. The Gulag was a series of prisons and labor work camps spread out across the Soviet Union, many in places like Siberia, the large cold tundra which takes up most of Russia's northern land area. It's about as remote a place as you can get on the earth, and Stalin adversaries and opponents would be sent here to languish and ultimately meet their death. In the summer of 1933, one such Gulag was planned on being built on Nizinsky Island in the Ob River. This was a new experimental gulag where prisoners, or what they deemed settlers, would come and construct their own labor camp on the island, create their own self-sustained community, and hopefully adhere to some type of agriculture to help promote food production. It was part of an ongoing vision dreamt up by the head of the Soviet secret police and the head of the gulag system, a program where they would send millions of political dissidents and other opponents of their system in the untamed wilderness to create a self-sufficient agricultural machine which would be self-sustaining and also help feed all of their citizens. A big part of this was to cover up the Ukrainian famine which was going on and putting a stain on the picture-perfect world of communism they were painting. The island they chose was hardly ideal for this. Dzinsky Island, or Nazino Island as some reports label it, was only two miles long and less than half a mile wide, and mostly swamp, with no structures yet built on it. 
In early May, several barges land on the island and deposit an initial 3,000 settlers with another 4,000 arriving later. Things were already going poorly as roughly 25 people died on the voyage. One of their first problems was, due to the cold Siberian winter not yet thawing, the barges carrying tools, food, and other supplies had not been able to get upriver. So the prisoners, or settlers, had beat them there. The guards, greatly outnumbered, simply dropped their passengers off and tried pulling away from the island. Despite it being May, the river was still icy in Siberia, and any escapees trying to swim it were either shot by guards or drowned in their attempts. With no food, the government did attempt to start sending in flour for the prisoners. However, everyone was so hungry when guards tried to initially deliver the flour, they were swarmed and were forced to shoot people to even allow just for a retreat. When prisoners finally got the flour, they did not have stoves or any way to cook it, and they either mixed it with water or ate it raw. The flour and water concoction or a doughy substance led to dysentery and prisoners dying from that, while others who ate the flour raw would inhale it and in some cases choke and suffocate from it. Things were dissolving rapidly into chaos as the body count kept rising in just the first few weeks with more prisoners on the way. And this is where people began resorting to cannibalism. One survivor, when interviewed and asked how they could possibly eat human meat, simply said, quote, it was very simple. Just like shashlik, we made skewers from willow branches, cut them into pieces, stuck it on the skewers, and roasted it over the campfire. He went on to say, I picked up those who were not quite living, but not quite dead. He added, it was obvious they were about to go, that in a day or two they'd give up. So it was easier for them that way. Now, quickly, without suffering for another two or three days. End quote. So you can tell this man is rationalizing his what he would consider a mercy killing. Now from what I've read, it started out as a menu of opportunity. Escapees who were shot, drowned, or died of dysentery would be lying around or wash up on shore, and the islanders being driven mad by hunger would resort to something most people would never dream of doing, eating the flesh of another human. I've wondered if I would be able to do that, to consume human flesh for survival. I instantly wince and say no way, but it was the difference between life and death. I could only answer that if I were in the position. I, I hope that my moral code would not allow me to kill someone in order to have a meal, but if they were already gone, I just don't know how strong my or anyone else's survival instincts would become when pushed to the limits. But what initially started out as eating the dead quickly turned to all-out anarchy with people being eaten alive. One survivor reported, quote, On the island, there was a guard named Kostya Vinikov, a young fellow. He was courting a pretty girl who had been sent there. He protected her. One day, he had to be away for a while. People caught the girl, tied her to a poplar tree, cut off her breasts, her muscles, everything they could eat. Everything. They were hungry. They had to eat. When Costa came back, she was still alive. He tried to save her, but she had just lost too much blood. End quote. A woman who grew up on a farm on the mainland neighboring the island recalls one victim being brought to her house for medical attention. She says, Once a woman from the island of death was brought to our house, she was being taken to another camp. The woman was taken into the back room to spend the night, 
and I saw that her calves had been cut off. I asked, and she said, They did it to me on the island of death, cut them off and cooked them. All the meat on her calves were cut away. Her legs were freezing because of this, and she wrapped them with rags. She was able to move on her own. She looked like an old woman, but really she was just a little over 40. Things progressed even worse. Stalin and his men liked to mix political dissidents in with hardened criminals to keep people scared. And these men were on the island with many who had been rounded up for just criticizing Stalin's regime or simply not having proper ID during police inspections. This led to even more chaos. Some criminals would beat other inmates to pull the gold from their teeth to buy cigarettes and matches from the guards. People were burning alive as they caught fire by sleeping too close to the fires at night to stay warm without shelter. In the end, in just four months, Cannibal Island claimed 5,000 of its 7,000 inhabitants. Survivors were shuttled off to nearby gulag camps to endure their punishment. But of these survivors, only 300 were deemed healthy enough to do any amount of work in their new homes. In the end, I tell you this story not to disgust you or for the shock value, but to alight on the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that men with absolute power will stop at absolutely nothing to keep it, including destroying the lives of those who have given him his power and silencing the voices who would rise up and hold him accountable. And that communism and the means at which it will allow for this level of corruption and deterioration of the human spirit should be viewed as a cancer that can erode the moral fabric of society. Class dismissed. This podcast, written, produced, and narrated by Isaac Goff in wild, wonderful Wart County, West Virginia. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. <laughs>